Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Performance Anxiety. This week's show features guitarist Robert Poss. Robert's been on the edge of avant-garde guitar playing since the mid-80s. He formed Band of Susans, has played with Reese Chatham, and 199 other guitars. He's also released a new album, Frozen Flowers, Curse the Day. And we talk about his influences for that album, his other solo work. We talk about... Rambler sports cars and Russian ghost radio stations. And don't forget to give us a good rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, or any other podcast platform that you listen to. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PerformanceANX for both platforms. And check us out on Facebook. Here's Robert Poss. Hi, this is Robert Poss uh, from the Band of Susans uh, uh, several years ago. I have a new solo record out called Frozen Flowers Curse the Day, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. All right. And, and let me know if I'm talking too loudly or too softly. Oh, no, you're fine right now. You're, that's okay. absolutely perfect. Performance uh, anxiety. That's uh, very, I'm very familiar with that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we can talk. We can talk about that if you like. Uh, I had Trey Gunn on, and we we spent like twenty minutes on that. There you go. So, like I said, I really do thank you for coming on. I've been listening to Band of Susans for ever. That's great. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, you know, I've got. I don't have all of your solo work. I will be honest, but I do have a lot of it. That's so, all right. So uh, I, I do have the new one, and I do have Distortion's Truth, and and uh, I've been dying. I hadn't gotten it, but I wanted here uh, Gilbert uh, Gilbert Postanger. So, yeah, that's a crazy. That's a crazy thing. Yeah. So we can talk a little bit about that, but what I, first thing I want to find out about you is a little bit of your history. Like, sure. Where? How did you get started playing guitar? What age were you when you decided? That- well, you know, I my my first instrument was bass. Was bass guitar. Okay. Um, I I w- I had failed miserably at trying to learn how to play the piano, and also <laughs> I was like the world's worst trumpet player. I was like in the junior high school band i was like you know third trumpet fourth chair or (laughs) something you know you you know mostly spent our time counting rests you're gonna make my daughter feel good because uh you're a professional musician and she plays the trumpet in the high school marching band and she loves it yeah well i was i was absolutely terrible so (laughs) you know when when i was when i was a teenager I, i think i was 12 and a half i was really in love i was sort of in love with the look of electric guitars i used to look at you know the beatles and see these I didn't know what they were then, but they were Hoffners and Gretches and Rickenbackers. And right. I just thought they looked so cool. 
I actually thought an electric guitar was like you plugged it into the wall and it was sort of like an electric knife, you know, like <laughs> it would it would kind of like do something. I didn't understand that there were amplifiers. Oh, wow. Um, in any case, yeah, so I my first instrument was, was a, like a Hofner copy Beatle bass. Oh, okay. And I just picked bass because I thought it was really cool. I mean, it was, this was not that much thought into this. Okay. I'd been noodling around on like an acoustic guitar that I was totally mis-tuned in some kind of weird open tuning. <laughs> and anyway, so I got this bass and I just, I became obsessed with it. And I, I was spending like two and a half to three hours a day up in my room, um, you know, listening to the radio and trying to learn the songs. And I, I really wasn't good at sports and I didn't like sports. And so my parents, you know, I think my parents thought that this was going to, lead to a future of, you know, fried foods and deviant behavior or something, <laughs> which, which in fact it did, you know, so they were right about that. Parents so, know best still. So I was like, you know, I was listening to, you know, radio then, you know, and so it was like the Beatles and the Stones and, you know, the British invasion stuff. And, you know, there was Motown and everything else, but I was more into sort of rock. And so I started playing in these little bands in junior high school and, you know, doing Iron Butterfly covers and, oh boy. you know, all kinds of, you know, stuff. And I was really, I was starting to listen to a lot of blues. So I was playing in these blues bands, sort of, you know, I was totally obsessed with Albert King and the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and Mike Bloomfield and, you know, and also okay. some of the, the British guys that were, you know, Eric Clapton and stuff, a little bit less. And so, yeah, so I was sort of into blues and blues rock and I had a bunch of these different bands. Um, you know, through junior high school and high school. And um, actually, I went away to college. And after that, I got together with two of the guys that I had been playing with. And we formed this sort of punkish band called Tot Rocket. And that was in New Haven, Connecticut. We put we put a couple seven-inch records out. So that was, you know, that was my. I'm a self-taught musician. I don't know half the time what notes I'm playing or what I'm doing. I'm. I like to tell people I'm like, you know, like those blues players, like one string Sam. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I, I I have I can do like these three things, and that's all I want to do. Right. That's not that's not really true, but I I sort of think of myself that way. I did go through a period where I was learning, you know, Dwayne Allman solos and Eric Clapton solos and all that stuff, and I oh wow I can still I you know and Albert King and Mike Bloomfield, and I can still actually play some of that stuff. But I don't because it doesn't really interest me. But I did. I did go through a period where I was learning those solos off the records and stuff. Oh, wow. um, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, when I was a teenager. And this was in the. This was, you know, in the in the late '60s, early '70s. We're talking about. So, you know, the music on the radio was pretty good, and there was oh, also yeah. what they used to call FM radio, which in those days was more the, almost the equivalent of college radio, but it was sort of DJs playing. You know, they might play Captain Beefheart or something, you know, something really out there. Yeah, yeah. At what point uh, during this process did you discover effects, pedals, and distortion? You know, I was pretty late to that. I'm sort of a late bloomer in a lot of respects. I mean, when I was playing, you know, with these various rock bands, and I actually switched at some point from bass to lead guitar, 
Um, although I still love playing bass, but I sort of, I ended up playing lead guitar and, you know, what was called lead guitar in those days. Um, but you know, we were just using these small Fender amps just turned up loud. You know, we didn't have any pedals. I remember when one guy got like a phase shift pedal and we thought it was just the weirdest thing in the world. (laughs) I didn't start using pedals until really the eighties The you know, and I think, you know, my first I had actually that that's I'm 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 actually forgetting something. I did have this fantastic fuzz pedal in the late seventies. It was made by Olson Electronics. Olson was like a Radio Shack kind of company. Oh, okay. And you know, there was Lafayette, there was Olson, there was Radio Shack, and I had this fantastic fuzz pedal that I, I I've only seen a few of them. And so I did and that gave us sort of almost like a satisfaction kind of fuzz sound, but oh, okay. more sustainy. But I never really started using pedals too much until, um, you know, I got a tube screamer and then I started playing Marshall amps and I was like, you know, with this, with the band Todd Rocket, you know, we were sort of a very clash influenced sort of punkish band. And so there was some distortion there, but, you know, and I always loved this, this sort of feedback and I always sort of, you know, I mean, I loved playing these amps loud enough that they would feedback and stuff. Oh, yeah. But it was pretty haphazard. It was really it, the time that I really sort of discovered my own voice was after this this band taught Rocket and the second band, which was called Western Eyes, which is sort of an offshoot of that. And around eight, 84, I just sort of was disaffected from the whole music scene and the music industry, you know, having put out a couple records and, you know, gotten some good reviews, but was never really trendy or that, you know, successful. Okay. I just started from scratch. I had a couple of digital delays, which were very new in those days, and a couple of distortion pedals. And I sort of stumbled onto a sound that became my sound. And it was very simple. It was stacking certain distortion pedals. And it was just the sound itself, the, the distortion itself became an inspiration. And so okay. I started, you know, droning with these and doing these feedback things and these repetitive riffs. And I would like, I would like have a little drum machine pattern and I would like loop a drone and then I would like loop a riff. And then, and then I would play over those, those three elements. And that sort of, that was the basis of the band of Susan's sound essentially. Yeah, and and it's one of the things I've I really enjoyed about Band of Seasons was that the the drone and the distortion were a, as big of a focus on the songs as lyrics or or, or a rip. And uh, that's one of the things that, that drew me into the band in the first place. Yeah, I was, you know, and part of that, you know, I was inspired by, there are two composers that really inspired me, um, Reese Chatham, you know, playing with Reese Chatham for a number of years, right. although he used totally clean guitars and he had a very sort of, you know, he would, the music was written out and it was very orchestral, but he, he was able to do some things with some very simple parts. And then another composer who's a sort of a real serious music composer named Phil Niblock. I'd actually just performed with Phil Niblock um, uh, last night. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyways, Phil Niblock is a sort of a minimalist composer who just uses only drones, slightly detuned drones. He's also a fantastic filmmaker. 
and he makes music. It's sort of it, he's in the same tradition somewhat as like Lamont Young, um, okay. sort of minimalist, sort of trance-inducing, you know, drone composers. Um, he had really inspired me, you know, because he was making music. He used to say, "My music has no melody, no harmony, and no rhythm." <laughs> and he and you know and he was proud of that you know <laughs> and uh and no bullshit you know right yeah <laughs> so um so i think the you know being exposed to those two those two composers i think gave me a, a bit of a kick you know a bit of inspiration but yeah i and the other thing is you know there these there's this great period like in the rolling stones like Baron beggar's banquet and satanic majesties well they'll just like throw on like a mellotron drone or a shanai which is a double reed instrument okay and i love those moments of sort of a, it's like a pedal point it's a drone that cuts across all the whole chord progression right right um and that was really inspirational that was as that was as inspirational as as um reese or or phil diblock and also i was listening to some indian music and i you know and, and also some of the, you know, so there's certain blues players that basically are doing like one chord things, you know, mm -hmm. the, there's certain sort of a blues tradition. that's not like a one, four, five progression. It's actually just a one, you know. OK. You know, there's some great Fred McDowell stuff that just goes along on one chord. And it, it's an essentially it's 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 a it's sort of an implied drone. Um, OK. So, okay. yeah, that fascinated me. Yeah. Well, and I've, I've noticed it. Band of Susans, and, and I want to get into how they formed it all in a, in a couple of minutes, but I, since we're on the topic of the Rolling Stones, you guys uh, in Band of Susans did a few Rolling Stones covers. To me, it, it was a really interesting choice, and and at the time, I didn't realize that the Rolling Stones were a big influence on you. I guess covering them, I should have guessed that, I deduced that apparently. But you guys took something and covered it in a band that wasn't a traditional classic rock sounding band. Yeah, and that was that was really intentional. I mean, th there's a period of the Rolling Stones. Um, Really, from like around '66 or '67 to around '70, or maybe as late as '72, that just I really fell in love with. Now I think of the Rolling Stones as they're probably among the top four Rolling Stones tribute bands in the world. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I but there was this, and and also the lyrics and stuff are crap, and they you know it's just. But there was this <laughs> there was this period, you know, there was this period when they were really I was totally obsessed with them. As a matter of fact, I in 1970, a father of a friend of mine brought home this London Times article, and it was about Keith Richard, and it mentioned that he played a five string open tuning and i had never heard of this and of course in those days no one else had either right except right. like maybe Ry cooter or someone like that so i started playing this like five string keith richard thing and suddenly i could play those great pure keith richard chords like on street fighting man and that kind of stuff right yeah so i was really obsessed with that and actually i still i still write in that tuning sometimes there are a couple of band of susan songs in in that tuning there was a top rocket song in that tuning. So yeah, there were you know an influence, but it's a very specific moment of 
their entire career that I was really drawn to. Speaking of, of Top Rocket in your, your early days, I read a quote, and I was hoping you could kind of shed a little light on it for me. And the quote is, Robert, you can go to graduate school anytime, but Johnny Rotten only oh, yeah. comes around once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a very strange moment in my life. That was after <laughs> Western Eyes. We were just putting out this record. Western Eyes was sort of a re- revamped version of Tot Rocket, and but it was sort of remixed by a good friend, electronic music composer Nicholas Collins. Okay. And anyways, we had this 12-inch, and that was sort of you know our, our last big attempt to sort of do something bold. But so I decided, you know, what do you do? Like I had been to college and I was a serious student. And what do you do when you don't know what you want to do? Well, some people, if they can afford it or get student loans, well, you go to school, right? Right. So I applied and got into one school. And the school I applied to was the Columbia University School of Journalism, which was actually the premier journalism program in the country at the time. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I got some student loans and my parents were going to help me a little bit. And so I had just started. It was, you know, in like September of 1983 or 84, 83, I guess it would have been. And in the meantime, a friend of, a friend of mine from the band was working at a rehearsal studio and he said, you know, Public Image is auditioning guitarists and they haven't found anybody. And you, Robert, would be perfect. And the truth of the matter is, is that I had a, I very much had a style at that point, somewhat reminiscent of Keith Levine okay. and sort of minimal sort of stuff. So anyways, to make a very long story <laughs> short, and there's a whole <laughs> web page about this, but I auditioned for Pill and I got in. You know, Johnny Lydon called me. Oh, Robert, you know, we want you. You know, we're going to be leaving for, you know, Japan or something. You wow. know, and I was like, so here I am, you know, plucked from obscurity. <laughs> I'm good. I'm in Pill. Like, yes, you're in the band, Robert, you know. Um, but I'm starting graduate school. And so I call my parents from like a phone booth. In those days we had phone booths, right. yeah. you know, <laughs> put, I put in the, you know, the quarters or whatever it is, you know, yeah. calling long distance to Buffalo, New York, you know, yeah. I say, listen, mom and dad, remember, remember journalism school. They go, yeah, isn't that great? You're finally doing something with your life. You're going to school, you know? <laughs> and I said, well, remember, have you ever heard of a band called the Sex Pistols? And they're like, silence you know yeah. <laughs> and i explained to them i explained to them that you know i have this opportunity to to be in this what was then a super cool band you know right oh yeah and my mother i'll never forget it she said robert you know you can go to school anytime but johnny rotten only comes around once you know <laughs> which was the sweetest thing that she could have possibly said yeah um so anyways i played in the band for a couple of weeks and it was sort of clear that what they really wanted was the sounds that they're prior guitars this was well after keith levine but their tour they wanted the sounds their touring guitars had and they didn't want to really rehearse me like you know it was clear it would have been a a steep learning curve for me to learn like you know all their material because i only knew like four pill songs oh i mean i aced i aced the 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 audition just by kind of like faking it and by like you know (laughs) but but you know i obviously had the right sound and the right you know i I knew what i was doing to a certain extent so anyways what happened is i sort of got unpilled i was sort of said well robert you know it's just it's not really working out so they rehired their old guitarist that had left the band the funny thing is that next tour was sort of was really panned by all the critics and i ran into martin atkins who was their drummer at the time like 
at a wedding or something after the tour. I said, yeah, Martin, you should have taken me, you know? And he was like, yeah, yeah, you should have. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was, but the weird thing was like being in pill. And I told my girlfriend, Hey, you know, I'm going on tour. And, and I was telling people, you know, I'm in pills. I was going to the record stores and like buying their records so I could learn the material. And it was like, you know, I'm in pill now. And they were like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. kid." Yeah. <laughs> but I was, I was really in pill. That's amazing. For, for a couple of weeks. And, and then of course, grad school never seemed as appealing. Oh, God, I would go, no. I would go up to Columbia and I would be jealous of the guys I saw on the subway with guitar cases, you know. Oh, God. I did, I did graduate with honors. I did very well, you know, and, I, and some of my professors, I had one evaluation from a professor who said, you, you know, you should take that shoe polish out of your hair and become a writer, you know, like stop this punk <laughs> stuff. You know? Oh, what do they know? But what do they know? So anyways, that was that was my brush with with public image. Oh, man. So, um, you mentioned uh, working with Reese Chatham and I wanted yeah. to I wanted to find out a little bit more about that because uh, I found out about Reese through Band of Susans. Yeah, some people did. A lot of people did, actually, with Guitar Trio. Yeah, Guitar Trio. We and- were we were like sort of we were um, promoting and hyping Reese before anybody else. <laughs> anybody else in the rock scene but you know reese you know the brilliant composer and i was introduced to him i think by nicholas collins or maybe by susan sanger probably nicholas collins you know in the, the mid 80s and i joined his guitar group which was basically six guitars bass and drums And we worked and worked and worked, and we refined this piece called Die Donnergotter, which is the German for the Thunder Gods. Right, and, yes. you know, I played on that record, and we did a tour of Germany in 87. And that was, you know, coexisting to the time that I was also starting to find my own voice, although I was at the opposite end of the spectrum. I was all about, Reese was all about purity, and I was all about, like, distortion and feedback <laughs> and stuff. Right, yeah. Um, but so, yes, yeah, so that was really influential. And I met, you know, Karen Hagloff, who ended up playing in Band of Susans. And I met this guy, Evans, who actually is the leader of this of two bands that I currently play with um, that are sort of art rock bands. So, you know, it was a really and also Ben Neal, who's a primarily a trumpet player, but he was in in the Reese Chatham band and it was in Bill Brovald. I mean, it was a, it was a great bunch of musicians. Some, you know, most of whom were, I would say three quarters of whom I'm still in touch with after all these years. That's fantastic. And you still play with Reese occasionally. Is that right? Occasionally. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, I've done, I did something at the Metropolitan Museum. Um, I part participated in his big Lincoln center, 200 guitars extravaganza a number of years ago. That's And yeah, every once in a while he'll call me up and he has some project and he wants, you know, wants and invites me to participate, which is always fun. Yeah. Now, how does, how does uh, something for 200 guitars work? I mean, I can't, I can imagine it, it, it's just without proper direction. That would just be, well, you know insanity. what it is. Reese has been doing this for a long time with multiple guitars, like especially in France. You know, he lives in, lives in Paris um, for a hundred guitars and two hundred guitars. And the way it works is he has it's sort of it's it's actually a very clever. He you know he solicits people um, to participate and they sort of write it and maybe ask them some questions. Can you read music or what have you done? Anyways, mm-hmm. he assembles a bunch of people 
And then they get together and rehearse and things are broken down in sections. So they're like section leaders. So let's say there's, you know, 10 or eight different people that are sort of going over the score each with, you know, 20 musicians or something. Okay. And so, you know, they sort of learn their parts with the section leader and then it's sort of all put together for maybe one big massive rehearsal and one big performance. But it wow. is it is kind of insane. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I have trouble just getting three people together for a rehearsal. You yeah. know? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's hard enough to do that. So it's it's kind of but Reese has figured out a way to do this and it, it, it does have to do with and also he tells people what you know, there's these take you know, this takes months of preparation. He gives people tapes to listen to, he gives them a score. Right. You know, people get their parts assigned. They sort of learn their part. And, you know, it's a lot of repetition, too. So it's not, you know, it's not it's and the parts are relatively simple, melodic parts. Yeah. Um, so, it's you know, it's it's not it's not impossible, but it is it is administratively <laughs> insane. You know what I mean? It's insane. It's like a nightmare. I can. You know? I, yeah, I, can, I can't even imagine trying to, to organize the whole thing. And the thing that I always really liked about it is that it like you're saying, it's orchestral. It's not. The, just a whole bunch of noise. No, it's it's very it's very orchestral, and you know, there it's sort of parts are divided almost like when you almost have sopranos, altos, basses, baritones. I mean, it's 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 divided, you know, across the, across the sort of sonic range. So everyone's not playing, you know, the same six strings, or they're not, you know, there's several several guitars tuned in different ways. So you know, it, it's a there's sort of a multiplier effect, although I have a feeling that the 200 guitars probably sounds less interesting than like 60 guitars. <laughs> like I think at a certain point, you I think you you get diminishing returns because you get so much cancellation, you get so much phase cancellation, and I don't know, you get things get a bit blurry. But it is quite a spectacle. I can I would love to see one of those performances because I can only imagine how powerful that would be in person. I've only yeah, heard them. There's, Probably some stuff on YouTube, maybe from France, and I don't know if it captured it or not. But there's, there's probably some. If you look at, you know, there's probably some stuff on YouTube of, of, of uh, you know, videos of some of the performances. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I would love to be there in person because no, in person is the way because yeah, and also in Lincoln Center we did it. We did it sort of in a, in a square with the audience in the middle. Oh my god! So, you know, so the audience was surrounded on all sides, or maybe it was just three sides—at least three sides—by wow. these guitarists, and you know, all of, everyone has their own amp, you know. So it's it's not just two hundred <laughs> guitars; it's two hundred guitar amps, you oh know. So that's god. an astonishing, an astonishing concept. You that know? Is, yeah, that that's amazing. So how, yeah. How did you meet Susan Stenger? Susan Stenger and I went to school together. Um, we met as teenagers. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, we were like best friends. We were boyfriend and girlfriend. We played in some bands together. You know, I think we sort of mentored each other in some respects, although she probably taught me a lot more than I taught her. <laughs> um, she introduced me to all this great sort of more avant-garde music that was happening in Buffalo. Um, stuff like, you know, John Cage and David Tudor and Julius Eastman, uh, Czech composer Peter Kotick. Um, Fred Shevsky, there are all these, you know, people. Susan was very immersed when she was a teenager into what was then called new music, which was really sort of serious avant-garde music. And she she was trained as a classical flutist, and she studied in Prague for two years at the conservatory there. Wow. 
um, super serious musician, but, but, but we also shared a lot of taste in music in, in, you know, we used to listen to Rolling Stones records together. Um, yeah. so, you know, we had worked together in these like silly high school bands where you play at the high school cafeteria, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and it's just sort of too embarrassing to even, you know, to even go through, right, but, right. but, you know, she was someone who I was very close to and, and remained close to. And, you know, when it came time to put this band together, which was sort of an out growth of i did this solo cassette called sometimes which was sort of the transitional thing between my sort of punk bands and band of students and i said you know why don't i have a band and i said you know but i didn't want i wanted just basically i wanted to be in a weird way sort of the svengali and that i wanted to get people that really hadn't played that much or even played at all and i wanted to teach them sort of my weird guitar technique okay. very simple part so and i had you know, it turned out that I had, you know, two ex-girlfriends named Susan and the wife of my best friend named Susan. And so it was like I had three women named Susan and Ron <laughs> was a great, fantastic drummer. Originally, it was just drum machine, but I got my friend Ron involved. And so people said, you know, they said, well, how's that band of Susans going? And they're, well, we're working, you know, we're going to play. And so we never we never thought of a really super cool, marketable, trendy name. Right. Which I think was our downfall, because I think when people saw the name Band of Susans, they assumed we were like the Bangles or something, oh. you know, that we were or the Go-Go's, you know, that we right. were. And so, of course, they were into a rude awakening when they went and saw us yeah. you know, <laughs> because they were they were pinned to the wall with, you know, loud guitars. <laughs> That would have been a great um, surprise for me. I would have, yeah. I would have loved so, that. So, you know, and I've, I've remained, you know, great friends and collaborating collaborating with Susan, you know, up to this day. We, you know, she lives in London and Ireland now. But, you know, we could get together sometimes. We did a project in Portugal. We did something in London. We did something in Paris. You know, she's very involved in music for film and also in sonic installations and also stuff that sort of, crosses over to the visual arts um okay. and whenever there's a project that um she thinks would be appropriate for me to participate in she'll she'll you know invite me which is wonderful you know so yeah. we still do stuff together and and plan to do more in the future oh that's good because I, the the chemistry that you two have is fantastic and i, lo I love the music you guys have made together and like i said oh, i haven't had you. i haven't had a chance to listen to uh, gilbert post uh, it's past, I don't know why I stumble over that every time I try Gilbert to say Gilbert Sanger. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, it's Bruce Gilbert, Robert Poss, and Susan Sanger. But the weird thing is that my father's name was Gilbert Poss. Oh, really? So it's very, it's very easy for me to say Gilbert Poss Sanger because it's like, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a bizarre record. That was basically, you know, two performances. And it, it was it's very kind of experimental and kind of strange and – I, I don't listen to it much, but it was definitely a moment. We, I was very, you know, close with the guys in Wire for a time. Okay. Um, and, you know, they came in New York. I played at their encore. You know, we toured with Wire in 88 and remained good friends for a long time. Yeah, you guys um, even did a, a, a Wire cover. And we did a Wire, yeah, we did a Wire cover, uh, the song Too Late from, I think, from Chairs Missing on one of our Peel sessions. Yeah, no, that was great. Now, did, you, did you guys also do something on, um, was it with one of the... Uh, was it Wire that they uh, cover or a tribute album? I think it was the song Ahead. Yeah, there's two different tribute albums. And um, there was one. Well, one was just a, a versions of the song Drill. And okay. that we're, we're on it uncredited. We're sort of like it's like a pre groove or something. I'm not sure what the correct term oh. is, but like 
you know, at the very beginning before the record starts. Like yeah, you have to hit, go to track one and rewind. Or yeah, hit, yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, on the other, but we did do a really cool, I think this, the record is called Four, yes. if I'm not mistaken. That's the one I'm thinking and, of. And we did, yeah, that was really fun. And actually, the guys in Wire told us it was one of their favorite of the covers. So that oh, was very nice. That's awesome, because there's some great bands on there, like My Bloody Valentine, I know. too. It's, yeah, yeah, no, that was that was a really fun thing. That was a really fun thing. And a Band of Susans had some pretty interesting lineup changes, too. And, and strange or, or unusual reasons why people left. So I guess when the first two Susans left, you uh, they were replaced with uh, Karen Hagloff, and yeah, and Paige, and Paige Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah, later, later to be famous in the band Helmet. Yeah, that. Yeah, you know the the, the funny thing is that, you know because I put this band together with friends and people that were you know with the exception of Susan and Ron, Susan Singer and Ron Spitzer. Um, you know the other two people were you know they had other lives and you know Susan Susan Tallman was a serious. Um, she worked in art galleries and was starting to write about art. Susan Lyle was a, a costume designer. Okay. And starting to get successful in that area. And they weren't ready to like go on tours and that kind of stuff. So I recruited Karen from the Reese Chatham band. Right. Yes. And then Paige, we got probably through an ad in the Village Voice. Oh, really? Man, that place has produced some great bands. You know, exactly. In the old days when you put advertisements in the newspaper, yeah. what a concept. Yeah, and you actually had to go and buy a physical yeah. newspaper and look. Yeah, through. and then, you know, and people, but you go to a rehearsal place, and we, we would audition tons of people. And, and, you know, there's a million guitarists in New York, but most of them were unwilling to play really concisely and precisely and simply. Everybody wanted to embellish. Everybody sort of wanted to make stuff, you know, like sort of in their own style. And the thing, the reason Band of Susan's music worked is because it was very precisely orchestrated and the parts are very simple, but they're combined in very unusual ways. And so you had to play it like the right way, you know, mm -hmm. and most guitarists were not used to that. They would in, They would put their own sort of inflection onto it or they would they would jazz it up a bit you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so anyway so this was always a problem yeah there were different there were different you know the changes in the course of, of you know the personnel really had to do with the fact that you go on tour you're not really making any money maybe you're breaking even but like suddenly you know let's say you're in a relationship and suddenly you're not making any money from your day job, but you still have rent to pay, you know? Right. So it's hard to get people to take 10 weeks off to tour Europe and 10 weeks off to tour the U.S. So at different times, different individuals couldn't make it or, you know, just financially couldn't make it or were too, you know, involved with their families or their jobs and stuff. Yeah. And actually, the more successful we got, the more difficult it was because we were touring more and more. You know, we had some record label support, but but still... You know, nobody would came home with any real money, you know, it was yeah. just it was really kind of, you know, a break even kind of thing. And, you know, we just did it for the love of doing it. And, um, you know, we sold some records, we sold some T-shirts, but it was um, so that that really was, you know. The, and the thing is, when I would get someone new in the band, I would teach them the parts or they would learn the parts off the tape. We didn't want people we didn't want like new blood in the band, the strangest that may seem. It was much more. <laughs> It was much more like the way Reese Chatham worked, which is he's the composer. He writes the music. He recruits the musicians. They play his music. And that was basically the way it was for me and Susan. You know, like, mm -hmm. okay, we get a new guitarist. They're going to learn 
they're going to learn our music. Right. So that is, um, that is, you know, that's the way it worked. And so it's a bit unusual than, you know, a lot of other bands at the same period. A lot of stuff about Band of Susans is unusual. It, you know, yeah. Paige Hamilton leaves and forms Helmet. Karen Hagelhoff leaves and goes to medical school and then becomes an oncologist. <laughs> Isn't that insane? Yeah. And she's doing so well now. And she's got some, as you know, she has records out of her own. Yeah. Yeah. I just um, had her on the show. Great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, she's. I just saw her the other day. Yeah, that's you know, it's funny because I've known her since probably like '85 or something or '84. Wow, man! And she's just doing great, and she's like really well respected oncologist, and she's sort of restarted her music career. Um, yeah. yeah, that's incredible. That's she's really an accomplished an accomplished person, and she's actually a product. <laughs> she's actually a productive member of society. You know? Yeah, <laughs> unlike the rest of us, you know. So yeah. that's really cool. Right? Yeah, she's not doing a podcast or yeah, <laughs> yeah, or like you know. <laughs> Doing, doing sound for television, you know yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, all right. So let's let's talk about that for a second. Does that in, in, involve a lot of the electronic music that, that you do, and and how did you get into electronic music? Well, there's two different things. I mean, I was always interested in even when I was at university. Um, you know, there was this composer Alvin Lucier there, and Nicholas Collins, who was an undergraduate, but it was like so precocious. He was like teaching electronic music courses. Um, so I was playing around with like modular synthesizers and stuff in the mid seventies. And I've always sort of had an interest in pure electronic music, meaning there's no keyboard. There's just patch cables and boxes and circuits and stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, so, and so, you know, I sort of, when I put out distortionist truth, you know, I started, I got back into that. That's why there's that weird sort of the synthesizer stuff. Mm -hmm. Now the work I do, like my day job, I do sound for television, but I do sound engineering for television. Okay. I do location sound. So for instance, this morning I was working for a, a large German network called ZDF and we were outside the United Nations and we were filming like, you know, our great uh, Donald Trump going by us in his limousine. Oh, OK. You know, so but normally I do more interesting stuff than that. And but so I do. So I make my living doing sort of what they call location sound. I work a lot for the Europeans and, and you know, and, and, and people from the UK and stuff. But so that's that's sound engineering. I'm the guy with the long furry microphone on the end of the pole, okay. you know, and, yeah. um, I'm, and I put lavaliers on people and stuff. So, so that's, that's, you know, right now my life is divided between my musical endeavors and then basically what is my day job, which is, you know, doing sound engineering for television, which I actually very much enjoy. Oh, okay. I very, I very much enjoy the work and I meet a lot of, I meet the most famous people in the world, the most interesting people in the world. So it's a, it's a great job actually. So, um, now, you've also done music for, uh, uh, like you were talking about with, with Susan Stenger, music for art installations, um, yeah. productions. Um, how and, is you know, it difficult I, to do? It's not. I mean, and, you know, I've done a lot of music for, for choreographers in the last 10 years. And um, a similar thing, which is it's, it takes me outside my own, you know, my own experience, Um it's a challenge. You know, I have worked with some visual artists. There's a there's an, an Austrian woman named Margaret Vibmer who is lives in Amsterdam, but I've done some music for her installations. Um, it's more about evoking a mood and sort of a sonic environment. Um, and okay. I like doing that kind of stuff. You know, it's 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 building stuff from the ground up and it's it's not about sort of, you know, song form or chord progressions. It's much more like it's ambient music on a certain level. Right. You know, it's 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 creating a, a mood or an atmosphere and 
I might use very primitive electronics or I might use some very sophisticated digital processing or I might combine the two. You know, I might use guitars. I might not. Um, I might, you know, employ percussion. I have one, a piece for the choreographer, Sally Gross, where I, I have these wood blocks I'm banging and then I have these Tibetan bowls I'm hitting. And, oh, you know, wow. so, I mean, I sort of branch out into sort of almost, you know, well, a far afield from guitar in any case. With stuff like that, is that something that they'll give you an idea of what they want? Or in the case of like a choreography, do you get a tape of the show or do you go to see the yeah, show before? Yeah, you know, it's, it's each choreographer I've worked with, has, and I've worked with three um, different choreographers, um, it's been a little different. But, you know, sometimes people have just taken my – I've actually been was told by one choreographer, hey, guess what, you know, I hope we don't mind, but I'm, I've used – you know, one of your pieces for this dance. Okay. And I was like, well, that's cool. You know, that's great. I'm, yeah. I'm you know, excited about that. But then more typically, I work very closely with them. I come to rehearsals. I sort of see what's going on as the dance takes shape. And then I might bring a guitar or a bass. Sometimes I have like a bow, which I bow the bass. So it's like a cello. Oh, wow. Um, and I sort of tr- work sort of in a give and take trial and error with, the choreographer and the dancers and I sort of think, well, what, what would work with this? You know, what, what's the mood? What, what am I trying to, what are they trying to get at? And so it's very collaborative, which is what I really like about it. And there's a lot of trial and error. Like sometimes I'll bring a piece of music that I think would be great. And it turns out that it's like not very good at all. Okay. <laughs> um, sometimes I'll bring something and it's kind of just perfect, but it's, it's too fast or it's too slow or it's too low or it's too high, you know? Yeah. So, it's an organic process, um, it, but it is different than some choreographers where they get a piece of music and then they make a dance to it. Okay. In my, in my, the way I work is generally there's dance and I make music for it. Um, and usually in, 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 in all of the work I've done, I perform live with the dancers along with some recorded bit of music. Oh, okay. Um, although occasionally it's just the live performance, you know. Sometimes wow. it's there's there's a one track on um, Frozen Flowers that is called um, Time Frames Marking Time, and that's that's an excerpt of a piece, a live performance I did with the choreographer Sally Gross, and that's just me performing live with the dancers. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't realize that. That's fantastic. Um, now now let's. Before we get into that, uh, uh, the new album, cross. I have a question about crossing Casco Bay. Yeah. That is a really interesting album. and Cool. I'm glad you like it. Yeah. This one's not played so much, and there weren't as many copies pressed, so it's 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 a little bit more obscure than the other one, yeah. It is, and unfortunately, I actually don't even have a copy. I've been having to to, to stream it through YouTube to, li- to listen to it. And well, I'll make you I'll make you a CDR and send it to you, so at least you have that. Oh, that'd be perfect. That'd be perfect. Yeah. Now, yeah. it's it's, to me... I that's I really enjoy that kind of that the kind of music, but I've I like to sit down and listen to it. It's not I don't like I don't get to feel it if it's background in the music. Yeah, and that's and, it. 
That's cool. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that because that's the way I like to do it. You know I mean? That's, um, because there's a lot of subtle things that happen. And if you sort of listen to it, you hear all these changes and things. Yeah. Yeah. I, stuff like that. I, I kind of feel like it, it's, I need to listen to it with my headphones on and yeah, if I can yeah. listen so I can actually hear everything. And I, I, I kind of wonder if, and, and this is, I guess maybe this is just me wondering out loud. If music like that is, is getting lost in, 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 in the way music is going now with everything being streamable, downloadable yeah. and, and everybody you know, got Spotify with one song and it's, well, that's the thing. That's, that's sort of my theory about contemporary music. Um, which is this, every song now is a single. Yeah. Because people will, if people aren't energized by the song in the first five or 10 seconds, they move on. Exactly. And that's really unfortunate because I know in my own personal experience and history of listening to music since I was a kid, some of my, what became some of my favorite records were records that I didn't necessarily automatically like when I first heard them. Or music that it didn't grab me at first, but it was through listening to a few times I finally it finally like clicked for me. Mm -hmm. And I do feel that, you know, with the you know the loss of the LP and the sort of the ability to sort of just instantaneously have music from all over the world at your fingertips. I mean, it's a fantastic thing, on one level, but it's also it 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 does it does mean that I th I think it. Um, what I'm trying to say is I think it leads to a shorter attention span. Exactly. exactly. And and I love the idea of really sitting down with it. That's why the LP was so great because it was like 20 minutes is a perfect amount of time. You have the first song in the first side and the last song in the first side. And then you turn the record over and it's like the second set. Yeah. yeah. And so the first song on the second side was always really important. Like, how are they going to start this? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, and of course you lose that with, with, you know, with CDs, but more importantly, I do feel that kids, especially everything has to be catchy right from the start. Yeah. You can't do a really slow build into something cool. Exactly. Because a lot of people will just move on and find something that's more viscerally exciting from the beginning. And that's why one of the reasons I love Guitar Trio is the build. Yeah, it builds, yeah. I love it. And the other thing that that I feel gets lost so much now with, with digital music is cover art. One of the reasons yeah, I got into Band of yeah. Susans was I'm a car nut. I love cars. Oh, see, the Rambler Marlin. The, yeah. the Marlin and the uh, the Bonneville Salt Flat Racer, the, that Ford that you guys yeah, had on yeah. the Now EP. Yeah, Both of those. That's cool, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Now EP, it's, it's a striking cover. It is To me, it's ab that artwork is absolutely brilliant. That's and, great. And I, I actually love the Rambler Marlin as a car itself. And so when I saw that a band had put it on the cover of their album and called the album Here Comes Success... I yeah. said, holy shit, I've got to get this album. This is going to be fantastic. That's great. And that, that, that artwork actually won some award or somewhere. But yeah, I, yeah, I, was, I remember hearing I always, that. I always was obsessed with, you know, my family drove Ramblers when we were young, and they were kind of like low-budget cars. Oh, yeah. And I always thought that like a Rambler sports car was sort of an oxymoron. Yeah, exactly. And I sort of, and the Rambler Marlin to me, you know, because it was very similar to like the Barracuda and some of the other fastback cars. Exactly. But I just thought the Rambler Marlin was like the weirdest and coolest car. And I just decided like, you know, the funny thing about, I'll tell you a little aside on that record, which is, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, 
obviously the you know the inspiration is the Iggy Pop song Success, where the chorus is Here Comes Success. Right. And so what we did is we put a car in the front and a rug on the back, which is Here Comes Success, Here Comes My Car, Here Comes My Chinese Rug. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so I actually showed it to Iggy Pop once. I was in a studio and I said, Oh, you know, Jimmy, we have this you know, we have this this record, Here Comes Success, and it's got a car in the front and a rug in the back. And he thought it was hilarious. Yeah. He just thought it was like <laughs> so funny that someone would do that. But that was really fun. That is, yeah, that's awesome. And that's that's what really it's, – it's funny because your last album is the first album to get me into the band. And it Interesting. Was, it was yeah. because of the Marlin. There's a, a guy who's got a, a Marlin in his front yard down the road from me that's just rotting away. Oh, cool. It's, it's cool. It's one of the cars that I've always wanted to to get yeah. in a kind of hot rod a little bit. But my dad is he's been a car nut forever. He got me in. Oh, it. that's interesting. Yeah. He always looks at that's me because good. I lo- I like the weird things, the Marlins, the the AMXs and things like that. And he's like, yeah. "What what is wrong with you? Why I know, do you like these I know orphans? it is. They're sort of like the ugly duckling. I also like these old Tatra, these Czech cars, the Tatra six hundred three. Oh, yep. You know, should with the three headlights and all that stuff. Oh, you oh know, yeah, yeah. You, but you're right about the cover art because the beauty, you know, and this sound makes us sound like we're like really old curmudgeonly <laughs> guys in our wheelchairs, you know. But but I mean, you used to have an LP and you just like hold it in your hands and you'd stare at it, you know, and it yep. was big. And maybe there were liner notes or maybe there was, you know, but oh, it was cool. like the art was, was really inspirational. And you would always associate the art with the music, yeah. you know, like. You, like Baker's Banquet, you know, it has a sort of sepia, beige and brown cover art. And yeah. when I hear that record, I'm kind of thinking those colors. Yeah. You know, it's just and a lot of that is lost now because, of course, you know, it's the same thing. You know, I, I have a Kindle and I read novels on it. And I never after like a while, I don't know what who, who the author is, what the title is or. Yeah. Because it's just a digital thing. Yeah, it's just a, a digital page. You don't have the cover. Of the you don't book have in the front cover that re- reinforces the author's name and the title and the cover art and anything. That's a so really yeah, good I, point. I do miss that. I do miss that 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 element of the cover stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, because artwork has just gone by the wayside, and unfortunately, because yeah. like like you're exactly what you were saying. I would sit on my bed and read the liner notes, stare at the the cover art, and there would be associations between yeah. the art and the, and the music. And yeah. some of the some of my favorite bands I found through reading the liner notes of right. other albums I was listening to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, that's, that's well. All right, so let's let's talk about the new album. I have one. The first thing I want to ask you, I have a question for you about a connection between Distortion Is Truth and the new album. That's fine. <laughs> all right. The, um, on the end of "You Were Relentless" on Distortion Is Truth. It's the uh, same riff as I've got a secret yes. list. Yes, you're the first person to mention that. Oh, really? You, you win. I don't know. You win a, <laughs> a CDR copy of, or something. A yes. CDR copy of uh, Crossing Casco Bay. Yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> you do. You win that. Yeah, that's. The, I took the tag, the sort of riff at the end of "You Were Relentless," and made a new song out of it. Okay, because that was my gonna be my, my question. Was is that yeah. something sitting around, or did you just develop it into no, a song? No, I just I just took I decided that I, I I like that final riff that comes in at the end, and I kind of thought, 
okay, I'm going to make something new out of this. Okay. So it's sort of a continuation of the song into a new song. But yes, that's from the same, you know, the, I, I added some tracks to it and everything else, but that riff is at the end of that one song on Distortion is Truth and sort of reemerges as, as a different song on Frozen Flowers. So you, that is fantastic that you picked up on that. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's apparent when you know about it, but it's, it means you actually listen to the stuff, which I really appreciate. Oh, well, I, I, I love I, honestly, I, The reason I wanted yeah. to have you on the show was because I love your music. So that, well, that, that's very nice. Um, okay. Here's sketch 72. I want to ask you about sketch 72. We, we talked earlier yeah. about your influence of the Rolling Stones. That is a very Stonesy sounding song. Yeah, that was done very intentionally as kind of like a tribute to my vision of the sort of Keith Richard five string open tuning guitar song. And, you know, and I tried to not hide that at all. I called it Sketch 72 because it originally was just a sketch for a song. Mm -hmm. I never put lyrics on it or a melody. And 72 is because it's really like it, it dates from in my own mind, in my own musical memory, it could have, it could have been like from exile on main street or something, you know, it's, it's from that sort of Rolling Stones thing. So I just thought, wouldn't it be fun to do that? That's actually the last song that I recorded for the record. And the Uh other thing that's really unusual about that is the drum part is from, and this would be fun. You can actually go back and figure this out. There's a song on, um, there's a song on Here Comes Success called Dirge. I think it's yes. on Here Comes Success. Yep. And there's a long tag at the end, like an instrumental section. Yes. And what I did is I took the drum part from the instrumental section of Dirge, and I, because I have the multitracks all transferred into Pro Tools, okay. I took just the drums, and I thought, I'm going to make a new song out of this drum part, because I love playing with Ron Spitzer. Mm-hmm. Um, but he can no longer drum. He had a stroke, and he's oh. he's okay, but he can't drum anymore. And so what I did is I just took this drum part, spun it off, um, very active, you know, drum part. And then I said I'm going to make a song. And then I said, well, why don't I do like a weird five string open tuning thing? And then why don't I play slide guitar, which I never play anymore, which I just love to play. So that that was almost like a concept piece, but. It was so much fun because there here I am playing with Ron again, even yeah. though it's just on a recording. And I'm playing this sort of and I have a very, you know, you know, in all modesty aside, I, I really understand this five string up and tuning stuff. Like I'm really pretty good at it. Oh, and yeah. I love playing it. I love playing it and I love the subtle differences. Like if you listen with headphones, you hear the two guitar parts and you hear these sort of subtle changes in accents and so so that was that was done purely for fun i mean i just i just thought this is really going to be fun and i why don't i put it on the record so i did well i'm gonna have to go back and listen to, I, it's funny because i was i was listening to here comes success today to kind of yeah. re- refresh a little yeah. bit and and I'll, I'll, elizabeth stride hell bent dirge those are yeah so listen songs. if you listen to the end of you know the end of dirge is like a break and then it starts with the drum fill that you'll see if you play that back to back to sketch 72 
you'll immediately hear that it's the same drum part. I will do that to, but tomorrow with a morning. Totally, a totally different context, a totally different thing. And I'm going to do more of that. It's like I'm pirating my own stuff. I'm sort of cannibalizing <laughs> it, you know? Well, you can do but that. I can do, I can do that. I, you know, not only do I own all the rights, but I can do it because it's, you know, my stuff. So what the hell? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, have you, all right. I, I wanted to ask you this because I was listening again to the album. I've, since I've got it, I've listened to it a lot. And, I like the song "Partial Clearing." Cool. Yeah. To me, to me, it sounds like this weird, and and I don't know if you if if this is an influence, and uh, please tell me if it is because it sounds so cool. There's a Russian ghost radio station UVB seventy six, and it's what they they nobody really knows what in the hell it is. They, they, there's oh. theories that it's like a a dead hand station where if right. if uh, the it, it just plays plays like monotone clips like like it, a four second clip and then it, it repeats about twenty five times a minute. Wow. And I'll have to look into this. I've never heard of this, I have to say. Or at oh, least I don't know about it. Definitely check it out. But the theory is that uh, well, there's two theories. And one one is very doomsday-ish and one is more probably closer to the truth. Well, the one is that it's a dead hand station where if the signal cuts out for a, any a specific period of time, it triggers a, a nuclear retaliation because the uh. the radio station sends a signal thinking that it's been knocked out and because due to a nuclear attack and because it, it's, okay. it's, it's been broadcasting the same thing since the 80s or the early 90s wow that's so great and it's just yeah it's just toned and every once in a while it, and by once in a while I mean every few months it'll cut for a second and somebody will will uh, utter Russian names. And numbers. Really? Yeah, it'll be like, wow. like Ivan, Troika, Anna. And well, then so cool. it's so creepy, but I, I can't stop listening to it. And the other is that it's just it's a military station and they just play this tone so that nobody else can claim that that bandwidth. That's frequency or something. Yes. <laughs> so that's like probably that. more accurate. I like that. I like both those concepts. So, yeah. so after we're done, go check out uh, UVB seventy six. And, uh, UVB 76. Oh, cool. Okay, I will. It's so weird because it kind of sounds like some of the droney uh, avant-garde stuff that you do. And it's it's, kinda, it's definitely, partial clearing definitely sounds to me like it was maybe influenced by that, even though obviously now I know it wasn't. So. That's really great, though. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that, that it has those associations for you. That's very cool. So you, you've done a lot of touring with Band of Susan's. Uh, and and I'm, I'm with, you know I'm sure with Top Rocket and, and your other bands, have what is you got and you guys have played in some 
great locations, some legendary places like yeah. you played in like Max's Kansas City, CBGB's. Yeah, CBGB, sure, yeah. Um, and I just had Richard Lloyd on a few weeks ago, and we were talking about how they, CBGB's grew and, and and his part in it. What? Yeah. Do you have any weird stories about touring, especially New York, um, going to London? You know. And- wow. Yeah. Let me think about it. Um, I mean, we did do some really great. You know, one of my favorite shows we ever played. We played this in Denmark at the Roskilde Festival, oh. and we played right after My Bloody Valentine. They played right before us, and we oh, played wow. right after them, and that was a great bill. And we played them with them again at the nine, the old nine thirty club in Washington. Oh, I, and to I, me, that's, to me that was a great bill. And the other, you know, one of the great tours we did was it was our first in the UK. It was it was um, Steve Albini's band Rape Man, mm-hmm. Dinosaur Junior, and Band of Susan. So that oh, was like massive guitar stuff. No, wow. Um, I don't live too far from the nine thirty club. I'm about an hour and a half away oh, yeah. from oh, DC. Yeah, yeah. We used to love to play there. You know, the thing about touring that is sort of interesting is that, you know, certain cities were really great and certain cities were not so great. So, like, right. you know, like Atlanta was always a fantastic city for us. Now, you would expect, like, Chicago and Boston. Those are always great, you know, yeah. because – and San Francisco was was really good. Um, Los Angeles was never never really that good for us. Really? Amsterdam, Amsterdam was not that great for us, but like Scandinavia, you know, Den- Denmark and Sweden, you know, we used to play several cities in both countries. Had a, we had a fantastic following in Scandinavia. You know, um, that makes sense, though, with, with all the weird music that comes out of there. Like, yeah, like no, it does make sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And the funny thing is that at this concert I was at last night, there was there were there were filmmakers there and they're doing a film about a a composer named Ellen Fullman, uh, F-U-L-L-M-A-N, and who's sort of a really cool composer who works with these very long strings. And this guy who was part of the film crew came up to me and said, oh, I'm a big band of Susan's fan. I saw you guys in Geneva, you know, in Switzerland. Oh, wow. And I was remembering that, yeah, Switzerland, we did really well in Switzerland. I don't know. Man. I mean, I'm sure there's some, there are probably some very funny stories that don't involve me getting like, you know, too drunk to remember what I'm doing. Or, I mean, I'm sure there's some good anecdotes of touring, um, you know, a flat tire out in Montana, and, <laughs> you know, weird, weird stuff going on. But I, I can't think of any anything. Although I, I would say that, you know, we played in 12 foreign countries and I think we played in almost every state in the U.S. except for Alaska, and Hawaii. So oh, wow. it was it was fantastic. I mean, it was like sort of urban camping. I mean, we didn't yeah, have we didn't we didn't have like a big bus and fancy hotels. We had like you know van and people's floors. Oh, In Europe, no. we had hotels because that's the way it works. But so it was it was rough, you know. And also in those days, the other one thing I will say is that when we were touring, it was before cell phones mm-hmm. and before really the internet and before GPSs. So we had maps. Oh, yeah. And handwritten directions, and we would have to stop at the phone booth to do like an interview <laughs> with the Cleveland plane dealer or something, oh, you know? Wow. Stop at the truck stop. And also, you know, when you're in Europe, you're looking at these maps, and the street names change every block, of course. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, now I would think, God, it'd be so easy now. You just put it in the Google, and you have a GPS, and yeah. you can call people on the phone. But those <laughs> days, it was like, we've got to find a phone booth, you know? Yeah, it was more adventurous. 
and you know we've got to we've got to do a call into a radio station and you know where's the phone booth and where's the map and you know <laughs> who's got change direct, yeah, and these directions are wrong and who has changed <laughs> i know yeah so anyhow it was it it is it was very primitive by by today's standards but it was it was it was an experience there any, sort of like it was sort of like being Lewis and Clark. You know, oh, sort of. Yeah, you know. I can imagine that just going out into the great unknown the, the, the for you uncharted, guys. Uncharted, uncharted yeah. So, do you have any uh, live band of Susans that that might get released in the future? There's, a, you know, there's a bunch of stuff on YouTube. There, there's a there's a cool gig from Hamburg, uh, Germany, um, from either '91. I think it's from '91. If you go to, if you go to YouTube and you search like Band of Susans Live, there's a CBGB show. There's, you know, generally the sound isn't super great, yeah. um, and either of the video for that matter was fairly <laughs> primitive. But um, that's that's the best way to find. I don't, you know, there's a lot of people that have cassettes of us, and people, you know, write to me and they send me stuff. And um, you know, very often the monitors weren't great, and so the vocals are like, you know aren't so great we're singing really flat or something you know yeah i mean you know it's in or we can't hear ourselves at all so who knows what's going on but because <laughs> we would always we would always overpower the monitors and stuff we, yeah, you know these big amps and playing loud but yeah but these, there's a couple of videos that are actually worth seeing i think um i do have some stuff live stuff that you know i'm think about doing with something with it at this point i've got i had a lot of stuff on cassettes and i finally had it digitized so okay. I have all these like CDs of not only I have all the band of students demos, the four track demos that I did for oh, the wow. band, which are quite interesting if you're really interested in the band. But you can see the original version of the song as I recorded it. And then you can see how it, how it became when the band recorded it. So, oh, that's the um, stuff I love. Yeah, it's it's fun. I mean, I, I may I don't know if I'll put something out, but what I might do is I might just dump a bunch of it on something like Bandcamp or something so people can access it. Oh, yeah, there you go. Um, you know, which would probably be the way to do it um, for the, the people that are really the fans of this. Because I, I've always liked it. I've always liked hearing, you know, some Pete Townsend home demo before the Who recorded it or whatever. Oh, I've got a you know, ton you know. of Jimmy Page stuff before yeah. Led Zeppelin recorded yeah. it. Yeah, and- exactly. That's, to me, that's really fascinating. So maybe someone's interested in that. I'll see. I mean, may put something out. Well, you know, I'm definitely interested in it because I love hearing that's how cool, stuff yeah. progresses. Yeah, that's now, cool. Did you have to ever – I always hear about and, – and you produced all the Band of Susan's albums. So yeah. did you ever have to do anything really weird to get the sound you wanted? I've, I've, I've spoken with a few producers for this show, and I've heard stories about making singers run around the, the studio you know, six or seven times to get them out of breath to get the sound that they want. Yeah, we usually used vodka for that. Oh, there you go. You know, <laughs> but um, but I, I think the thing we did that was a little weird is I would sometimes select microphones that were like the wrong microphone. You know, I would say, <laughs> like, let's use this. And the engineer who knew a lot more about this stuff than I did would say, why do you want to use that? No, no, just use it. Just use it, you know. <laughs> um, and it actually worked, you know. It actually generally worked. I I know a lot more about production and engineering now than I did then, and I actually wish I knew then what I know now. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, I was, I, I made, I made, you know, I would be the first to admit I made some mistakes in production, and I, I, there were certain problems that I thought could not be solved, and actually, with the information I have now, I could have solved it very easily, but. 
But um, that was part of the whole thing. You know, a lot of those Band of Students records sound like you're sitting in a room, like with your head in front of the guitar amp. And that's 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 all right. You know, that's yeah. sort of the way it is, you know. Well, that that's what I was looking for, especially back then. That, yeah, that's, exactly. That's exactly. the sound I wanted. Exactly. So. Well, uh, so where can everybody find the new album? Uh, where can they follow you on social media? And- well, I'm I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram under my own name. Okay. Um, on Facebook, there's a Band of Susans um, site, and there's also Trace Elements Records, with the records, which is the label. Woo! Are you still there? Yes, I am. Oh, that was an interesting sound effect I just heard. I, I, it sounded like I heard uh, a little tinkle, but that's all I got on my end. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's great. Okay. <laughs> um, um, and um, also, um, I have a website, which is robertposs.com. Okay. Which has different sections. There's a section for Band of Susans. There's a section for my solo work. There's even a section for the sound work I do for television. So, you know, I'm in terms of acquiring the music, um, you know, there's Bandcamp, there's CD Baby, and then Amazon has downloads. Um, I think Apple has it. I am, excuse me, I have a deal with a, a digital aggregator, which is a fancy way of saying that. You know, they distribute it to all the streaming sites and all the download okay. sites. And so it shouldn't, you know, if you search under my name or you search under Frozen Flowers, Curse the Day, um, it shouldn't be difficult to find. And as I said, Bandcamp and CD Baby are, you know, are very, um, are very accessible. And, you know, yeah. the, some of the Band of Susan's back catalog, a lot of it is out of print, but there is sort of a store section on my website. And what I do for people, for the stuff that's out of print, I'm willing to make them CDRs and send them like, PDFs of the artwork and stuff oh, for a very cool. small, very small price. That's wonderful. Um, you know, just because I'm, you know, my interest is in getting this stuff out there. So, you know, and there's a lot of people that, you know, want, did want this stuff. Um, and, but most of the band of Susan stuff is well, or a good part of it is available through, through downloads. If you go to Amazon or you go to Apple or whatever, if you search around, you can find the stuff. Okay. And there's even people on eBay selling records for like, exorbitant prices too, which is always you know sort of funny but oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well Robert thank you so much for coming out with me tonight I really do appreciate great. it great thank you it's lovely to talk to you It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.